This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Rebecca Huntley. Welcome to the History Listen. Well, popular culture has brought us some famously bad dragons and some pretty intrepid dragon slayers too. But today we're headed into lesser-known mythical territory and investigating a worm. The monstrous worm that you're going to hear about is a snake-like creature with a dragon head. It started marauding across northern England nearly a thousand years ago. And curiously, it still maintains a strong hold on the locals there. Producer Tom Murray's father was once one of those locals. And although Tom grew up in Australia, his dad's worm stories had a fierce grip on his childhood. Today on the History Listen, Tom travels back to the northeast of England to search for the story of the beast that invaded his youthful dreams. Here's Tom Murray and the monstrous worm. Do you see it? Because hidden inside this fiddler's tune is a great and terrifying creature. And as a child, Growing up on the northern beaches of Sydney, this monstrous worm invaded my dreams. The story of the worm. The worm. The worm. The worm. Which lad had the gobs. Not tell this all an awful story. Wish lad had the gobs. Wished lads, hold your gobs. I'll tell you about the worm. And I'll tell you about the worm. Yep, this is a story of a worm. Where it came from, what it might be, and what it all means. But the first thing I need to tell you is that it ate children. And bad children in particular. In the spirit of the poet Philip Larkin, I'm going to blame my father for gifting me dreams of the monster. We were driving on the A690 out of Durham in the northeast of England. Ahead of us were turnoffs to the Belmont Industrial Estate. Pilgrim's Way and the suburb of Dragonville. Each street sign like a new layer in the cultural stratigraphy of Britain's industrial, Christian and pagan pasts. And for each of these pasts, there's a river flowing along beside us. There it was. A river for the First Peoples, for the Celts and Romans, for Angles and Saxons and Jutes, for Vikings and Normans, for seers and fishers and shipbuilders. For each there's the River Weir, its stories and its beings. And then there's the rhyme my father brought to Australia. One Sunday morning, Lampton went a fishing in the weir and catched a fish upon his yook. He thought looked very queer. But what kind of fish it was, Lampton couldn't tell. He couldn't be asked to carry it yem, so he hooed it down the well. 
Madrid, left here. Yeah, left here. I asked my father how he came to know about the worm. Well, it was always a, a song that was around, and it belonged to the northeast. Um, but I suppose... It's taken me 40 years to try to track down the source of my terror, the Lambton worm. I have kids of my own now, and felt it was high time to grapple with the old monster. And when you used to sing it to, to us as kids, I mean, it was just before bedtime, and I was always terrified by the, the song. Well, I'm sorry about that. It's, it's about 40 years too late, but I am sorry about that. And from memory, as a kid, there was something in it where if you weren't good, the Lampton Worm would get you. There was something a little bit scary about uh, having to be good, otherwise this creature would come and get you. Well, it may, may well have been, but there were many, many songs about that. And it was of the uh, bogeyman realm, and so a lot of the things were, were related to that. This is the promiscuous truth of stories. To survive, they mutate to fit times and places and people. So the drama of a child's bogeyman in war-torn 1940s England invades the plot of an old folktale about a river dragon that's then retold in 1970s Australia to another child who later sees fragments of the creature in Indigenous dreamings. But we'll get to that part in the next program. This is a Lambton Worm pantomime in 2017. So 150 years later, they're still singing the famous song. The song my dad sang to me in Australia. He caught a fish upon his hook, which he thought looked very queer. But just what kind of fish that was, well, Lambton couldn't tell. And he didn't want to carry it home, so he threw it down the well. <laughs> but no self-respecting monster is going to be content beneath a bed or in a well. This is the local historian of the region, Robert Surtees, writing in 1820. The heir of Lambton fishing, as was his profane custom, in the weir on a Sunday, hooked a small worm, or eft, which he carelessly threw into a well and thought no more of the adventure. The worm, at first neglected, grew till it was too large for its first habitation, and issuing forth from the warm well, betook itself to the weir, where it usually lay a part of the day coiled around a crag in the middle of the water. It also frequented a green mound near the well, the warm hill, where it lapped itself nine times around, leaving vermicular traces of which Grave living witnesses depose that they have seen the vestiges. It now became the terror of the country. And amongst other enormities, levied a daily contribution of nine cows' milk. In default of which, it devoured man and beast. 
young Lampton had, it seems, meanwhile, totally repented him of his former life and conversation, bathed himself in a bath of holy water, taken the sign of the cross, and joined the Crusaders. And so you get this kind of very interesting transition historically between worshipping nature beings at a reasonably reciprocal way, which you can still see with hunter-gatherers and traditional cultures around the world, to cultures that generate semi-human gods, like the Greeks and Romans. So you get these wonderful pantheons living in places like Olympus. You can see the same with Valhalla in, in the Scandinavian cultures. And then you get the transition to the monotheisms. And it's with those that your dragons get demonized. And that's a very interesting set of transitions because those of you who read the Bible will know that in the early stages of the Bible, you get some very positive serpents like the seraphim. You get Moses' bronze serpent and you get a vestigial sense of the classical era with which it was connected in which people actually worshipped snakes, left milk and honey out for them on the doorstep and were very positive about them. And then as you transition through the Bible into its more modern form, you get the demonization of the serpent and discourses about trampling the serpent, that being Jesus' task. Um, you get the saints and the emergence of these big saint dragon slayers. And then post that, you have an absolute flood of, of these dragon slayers appearing, of which St. George has become the most popular, but they're all over the place. I mean, the icons of the dragon slaying are hugely dispersed around the world. And so, back to our dragon, the famous Lambton Worm. It's 1189, and our once profane fisherman has now found God. And been so stirred by the war cry of Richard the Lionheart that he joins the Third Crusade to recapture Jerusalem from Sultan Salah ad-Din. But the worm called out to Lambton. On his return home, he was extremely shocked at witnessing the effects of his youthful imprudences. That's the disturbing discovery that your discarded little worm from a long ago fishing trip is now a dragon decimating the countryside. After several fierce combats in which the Crusader was foiled by his enemy's power of self-union, he found it expedient to add policy to courage. And not perhaps possessing much of the former quality, he went to consult a witch or wise woman. By her judicious advice, he armed himself in a coat of mail studded with razor blades and thus prepared, placed himself on the crag in the river and awaited the monster's arrival. At the usual time, the worm came to the rock and wound himself with great fury round the armed knight, who had the satisfaction to see his enemy cut in pieces by his own efforts, whilst the stream, washing away the severed parts, prevented the possibility of reunion. 
On maps from 1730, Worm Hill and the Worm Well are clearly marked. But by 1785, the antiquarian William Hutchinson must have thought that the story was dying. Oh, aye, that's right. Near this place is an eminence called the Worm Hill, which tradition says was once possessed by an enormous serpent that wound its horrid body round the base, that it destroyed much provision and used to infest the Lampton estate till some hero in that family engaged it, cased in armour, set with razors. The whole miraculous tale has no other evidence than the memories of old women. It had, supposedly, great big goggly eyes, huge, get big teeth. And on a night it used to go marauding around the village and it would eat little babies, eat children. And I quite believe the story, really. This story was told in schools, in Sunday schools, it was told in pubs, and it's still told today. And I think my version of that story is the true story. It was just a story we heard when we were young and grew up with. We believed it. That was Audrey Thompson and Margaret Jenkins, who grew up near the villages ravaged by the worm. Roundabout, take the second exit onto A183. It's December 2017, and I'm driving the freezing roundabouts of worm country, asking locals about the child eating monster of my boyhood, the Lambton worm. In 350 metres, Audrey has sent me down to the likely sounding Worm Hill in Fatfield, and here I bump into retired local publican, Jeff Mendham. That's the Beck. That's the Beck. Where the reckon Lumpen went fishing. The weir is just over there, over that wall. Yeah. The river weir. Well, I thought he was fishing in the weir, but he wasn't. He was fishing in the Beck here. In the Beck. My belief is it was a, an oversized eel with a dragon's head on. Mm. You know? There are lots of different representations of the lantern worm in chapbooks, which usually show him as some kind of conventional dragon-like creature, um, something we'd expect to today. There aren't wings. Um, this is necessarily a water beast. This is Jamie Beckett, a researcher who scoured the archive for descriptions of the lantern worm. Uh, when Sir John fishes him out of the well, he's described as something looking a little bit like an eel with strange holes up and down his body. Big teeth, big nasty teeth, obviously the ability to reform himself a bit like this um, uh, ancient Greek hydra, a slithering creature which moves across the ground and really rampages across the country. He is pacified, we know, with um, troughs of milk, so you can see him as a creature which crawls on his belly and is kind of squirming around. Did he breathe fire? I haven't found any records of him breathing fire per se, 
but there are some suggestions that he might um, give out noxious gases from his throat, um, which is something which we see in several other worms as well in the region. So this generally poisoning influence, so something which is really polluting the landscape more than anything else and killing all these sheep and lambs and, and children even. Um, so, yeah, not necessarily our normal winged, fire-breathing dragon, but also a, a scary dragon nonetheless. I always imagine it as a, like a sort of massive, overgrown, bloated uh, physical worm, like a, um, a, a worm that you get out of the ground. Just a great, big, fat, long worm. It had a dragon's head. It didn't breathe fire, but I think it had a dragon's head and um, a spiny tail and, I don't know, 20, 30 foot long. That is, that is me reading what's going on, you know? I mean, it must have been good to, to do all it's supposed to be. From the descriptions that we grew up with, it sort of was half serpent, half dragon. It had fiery breath. Huge eyes, huge teeth. It certainly wasn't a vegetarian if it had children. Do you, do you believe that there was a, a, a large worm around the countryside at one point? Oh yes, because I'm a romantic, I believe. I believe lots of things about, you know, yeah. Yeah, I believe there was a worm wriggling about fat fields, but it never ever came to pension mind. I think that the legend just builds it up from being just a, like an eel, maybe, that grew and grew and grew to enormous proportions. So I think it might have been an eel or a water snake or something like that, you know. Well, I, I would say eel. <laughs> it was a big worm. We are reckon it was an eel, big eel. Well, I think it was a dragon. Were a dragon's eel? It was eating that yes, much fish. Yes, yes. It, it was, was eating that much fish. It just grew and grew and grew. Hi. Yeah. It was a dragon, not a worm. And it loved him. But he ended up, he had to go into the river and kill it. And that's the, the gist of the story anyway. He loved the worm. Yeah. Aye, but it was eating all the, the animals, the farm stock and everything around the area. So the locals wanted it killed. And he had to go and kill the... It was a dragon, not a worm. That was the, the fear. And he must have been sad then, though, yeah, yeah. something he loved. Aye. Well, there's no doubt our relationships to monsters are curious. Maybe Jamie Terrani, an anthropologist fascinated by monsters, might be able to help me out. One theory suggests that monsters are all about evolutionarily ancient predators that were a threat to our ancestors, kind of ingrained in our biology, almost like a kind of you know, evolutionary memory or something of, of real threats. But I think that actually monsters um, have a different function. I think monsters are actually projections of the monsters within. They're not about kind of real predators, real kind of threats that are out there. Most monsters are somehow about things we fear about ourselves or about um, other people.
The news of this git fully warm and his queer gannons on soon crossed the seas and got to the ears of brave and bold Sir John. So he came yam from Palestine and cut him in two halves and that soon stopped his eating bairns and sheep and lambs and calves. Slaying a dragon's a very empowering thing to do. It gets you a lot of kudos. This is anthropologist Veronica Strang. But the thing about Sir John is that he's part of a whole medieval set of stories about dragon slayers. And this is very interesting. Why did people suddenly want to start slaying these dragons? Why were they evil? You get these wonderful accounts in the medieval period of dragons in the skies and dragon hides being pinned up in church. And you get this wonderful plethora of dragon slayers. Suddenly, at that period of time, in, in the Crusades, there were an awful lot of them. And for me, this is very interesting because it suggests an interesting transition. And I think that this comes with a, a change in relationships with nature, a sense of human dominion. Because the other thing is, we're not very far here from Holy Island, from Lindisfarne, which is regarded very much as the cradle of Christianity in Britain. The monster has been described as difference made flesh, the other to how we imagine ourselves. Monsters corrupt our sense of order and control, and fuse and materialise our fears. I'm not sure how all this fits with the monstrous worm of my childhood though. Perhaps my worm made manifest the fears of a child immigrant in a new country. But when I talk with Jeff Mendham, the ex-publican I met on Worm Hill, I find that a dragon worm is a pretty flexible beast. Hello there. Hello, Tom. How are you doing? Bloody cold out there. It's bloody freezing. It was so bloody freezing. I said, sod, yeah, I'm going to the pub. <laughs> anyway, have a word with Jeff. Okay. Hi, Jeff. As you probably know, I've been uh, running around with, with Jeff here, uh, trying to talk to people who can tell me something about the worm. I mean, my, my interpretation of the lamp and worms is probably very, very different from anybody you've spoken to so far. I mean, in the first instance, if you just think it's a, a good old-fashioned allegory between the forces of good and evil, I think it's a little bit more sinister than that myself. It's actually demonstrating the power of the aristocracy to dominate the land. And uh, I think the Lamptons were very, very proud of it, simply because it showed that they could kill the worm and they were the ones who owned the way and they were the ones who owned the land. And uh, basically, they've, they've retained that position for generations now. I mean, the biggest landowner in this area is still the Lampton estate. I've actually heard the interpretation of the worm as a foreign power as well. Well, this, this area has always been raided by outsiders in it, the, the Vikings, people from the south coming up north, Scotch, Scotch coming down to rape and pillage and whatever. Mm, mm. I think that was very much manifested in the way that the people voted in the EU referendum, to be perfectly honest. Uh, the fear of foreigners uh, is very, very strong in the area and the fear of immigration is strong in the area, but the levels of people uh, who come from Eastern European countries or people who are immigrants into this area is very, very small in comparison to the rest of the country. People are uh, in the sick people voting. coming, just coming into the area and coming from different countries or whatever uh, and taking possession of different things. So yes, there's a, I think there's part of Brexit is protectionism. We want to keep that this was why ours. it was the highest vote. Is that Jeff in the northeast? Yeah. To leave 
the um, European Union. Yeah. Who besides that? Get back to your story, Tom. I reckon all these stories are kind of part of it because what you're talking about is people feeling a lack of control, and I think that is a fundamental aspect of the Lambton Worm story. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. That sums uh, it up. Lack of control. You've got people in, in positions of power making decisions about this country who have never even been voted into those positions. Uh, In the year from the incarnation of our Lord, 793, a fleet of the pagans arrived in Britain from the north. Is that accent okay? Yeah, I think, I think it's pretty good. I think you're fine. You're a 12th century Northumberland monk writing in Latin shortly after the Norman French conquest, so it's hard to know uh, exactly what kind of accent it would be in modern English. Okay, I'll just go for a cultured northern Scottish northeast accent thing then. Sounds good. Its approaching was presaged by the appearance of fearful thunders and fiery dragons flying through the sky. The barbarians rushed hither and thither, miserably ravaging and pillaging everything. The country plundered and the inhabitants slaughtered. In a few thousand years of travelling the River Weir, the worm has covered a lot of ground. A nature being that once embodied the powers of the river, it's since fallen prey to waves of invaders, settlers and aristocrats. I guess each new ruling elite requires their own foundation story, and to slay a worm is a glorious thing. And the dragon slaying continues to the present day. In 2011, the church brought back a ceremony where incoming bishops of Durham must swear on a medieval falchion sword to slay the dragon and topple the false gods. But this is all a long way from my Australian worm and the child-eating worm bait of a guilty conscience that threatened my 1970s boyhood. Those were days when we knew little about Australia's own colonial wars of conquest and even less about the worms and serpents that created and fought to protect the country of the first Australians. You've been listening to producer Tom Murray's search for the monstrous worm. Next week, the journey continues as Tom broadens his canvas and finds the mythical creature has arrived in Australia. Technical production today was by Judy Rapley and the supervising producer was Jane Connors. I'm Rebecca Huntley. 
This is the History Listen. Thanks for your company. 